Welcome to Atmospheric Tales, a podcast that amplifies stories and experiences related to air pollution and climate change from around the world. I'm your host Shahzad Ghani and welcome to another episode of Atmospheric Tales. Our guest today is a multidisciplinary global health expert with over a decade and a half experience as a health equity strategist serving on the faculty of Keck School of Medicine, University of Southern California. As a scholar practitioner, he has worked across cultures, continents and countries, including Pakistan, China and the United States since the early 2000s. He's currently based at the Harvard Divinity School, Harvard University, where he explores the complex intersection of religious moral philosophy, social ethics and public health policies, focusing on conceptualizing religion as a structural determinant of health and its implications for public health and climate action. In addition, he is also affiliated with the Harvard Innovation Labs and Harvard Business School, along with Harvard Climate in the Entrepreneur Circle. He holds a Doctor of Medicine, a Doctor of Public Health in Climate Resilient Health Systems, a Doctor of Education in Higher Education Administration, and a Doctor of Science in Information Technology and Climate Innovation. I'm excited to welcome our guest, Professor An Sirfan. Our interviewer today is Dorothy Lusoto, is a graduate student pursuing her PhD in Environment and Resources at the Nelson Institute for Environmental Studies at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. She holds an MS in Environment and Resources with a graduate certificate in Energy Analysis and Policy from UW-Madison. At the Nelson Institute, Dorothy lectures an undergraduate capstone course that she designed on air quality and equity in an African city with a focus on Kampala. Her doctoral research examines the persistent colonial city design of Kampala on its air quality and health. She studied environmental management for her bachelor's at Makare University, Kampala. It is from here that she worked with renewable energy technologies and air quality in East Africa for over a decade. Welcome to the show, Ans and Dorothy. Thank you, Shahad, and welcome our listeners. Today we have Ans, as you've heard from our Shahad, and uh, we're going to dive into our conversation today, which is very exciting. We're talking about climate change, ethics, and morality. Just to get right into this conversation, climate change now more than ever is getting most people's attention. We have witnessed increasingly extreme weather events around the world, including prolonged drought and flood events, threatening agriculture production, warmer ocean temperatures that usher in more powerful tropical storms and decimate aquatic biodiversity. And this year, actually, uh, Canadian fires blanketed the northern portions of the United States, in particular, matter and ozone. And even as I speak today, as we speak today, we still have an air quality alert that is going on. And so that's one of the issues we're faced with right now, in at least in Madison, Wisconsin. All of these symptoms of climate change impact public health, and these impacts are often not equally felt around the world. And according to experts like yourself, the lifestyle of people living in more developed countries and the consumption of those nations at large are primarily responsible for climate change. And yet people living in the global north will not feel the impacts of climate change as immediately or as significantly as people from developing nations in the global south, whose contribution to the problem is really minimal. And to explore this topic more deeply, I would like to ask you just a few questions about the historical political background of climate change and public health and how these issues are manifesting in the present what will likely be grappling with in the future within the context of ethics and morality. So according to the American Public Health Association, or APHA, climate change poses a major threat to human health. So Ans, how would you define human ethics and morality in the context of climate change and public health? Hi, Dorothy. It's so wonderful to be here. 
So I generally resist sort of like defining things because I think they restrain our imagination, but but it's kind of, I think you already alluded to it in terms of like both the power differentials as well as our duty to do what is right, right? So, mm-hmm. um, so I could sort of like, you know, comment on um, in this like broad philosophical terms in terms of like, you know, what is just and right, which is really kind of mm-hmm. boils down to from a, both a moral and practical responsibility to mitigate climate change and work towards the future. We're actively adapting to the changing climate, right? So it is about how do you reduce climate change impacts, but also how do you advocate for those policies to make sure people who are most socially vulnerable, both within these countries of so-called global north, but specifically in the global south as well. But what I will say is that, um, you know, we need to avoid the temptation of you know, just sticking with these definitions and just taking those without scrutinizing these, which is all to say that we need to scrutinize those terms such as like, you know, what is fair and what is morally right, right? So because science cannot answer those questions, those are questions that are going to come from ethics, that are going to come from morality and philosophy and so on and so forth. And we have this like colonial tendency, particularly in the global uh, North, where we use this great colonial language without scrutinizing those terms in a meaningful way. Um, So my invitation has always been to, you know, fellow colleagues, academics, practitioners within climate change sphere, that whenever folks, especially those in decision-making capacity, are talking about you know, uh, that climate morality and ethics is about fairness and justice. Like, what do they mean by that, right? What sort of actions does that lead to, right? So because like end of the day, what we need to keep it in mind is uh, that, you know, there are a couple of these just really egregious statistics that like top 1% of richest people in in, in the entire globe consume more resources than the poorest half of the entire humanity, right? So like, you know, world's top 10% richest people, they cause about half of global emissions, right? So like, you know, those are the things we need to keep in mind when we are talking about fairness and justice when it comes to climate ethics and morality. Wow, that's very interesting that you say that actually, because sometimes we get very stuck on the definitions, right? And just the way you're broken it down for us makes more sense because usually it's it's a blanket of like big terms and what does that mean to an individual? What does that mean when you break it down? So thank you very much for breaking that down for us. And maybe just to tag along question that maybe would go along with what you just shared. When you talk about justice, how should we balance the needs and also the interests of the current generation with those of future generations? Like what ethical considerations should guide decisions about like the effects of climate change that you're talking about and how do we adopt to it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I think, and this is something I'll probably bring up again in our conversation, but it's really important for us to keep in mind that like, we should not be conceding to this incremental climate oppression, um, if you will, which is really that in the U.S. context, for instance, and I talk about the U.S. A, because it's home, and B, because it, it's one of the countries that has like outsized power and role to either engage in climate action or climate inaction, one way or the other. And um, so in our context, for instance, th- there's there's this broader conversation about that we owe it to the future generations from an ethics perspective, but there is very little about that particular mindset getting implemented, right? Like, so examples would be, for instance, 
like Biden administration, which allegedly Democrats are the ones who are supposed to be caring about climate action in the U.S. context, if not globally. But Biden administration has sort of like, you know, approved all sorts of these projects from Alaska oil project, Key West gas pipeline project. (laughs) expediting gas lines. It's absolutely absurd uh, that how how much there is absolutely no care about the future generations, right? And when I teach climate change, I, I teach this concept of path dependency to my students, where the idea there really is that the choices that we're going to make today are going to limit our choices in the future. So if you're going to continue to invest significantly into fossil fuels today, It's not so much that, oh, uh, we're going to automatically switch those off. We cannot because that is going to limit our choices for many decades to come. So which is all to say that at the moment, uh, sure, we do have that responsibility. But beyond this sort of like, you know, uh, like metaphysical conversations, there's very little action about implementing and incorporating that ethical, moral imperative into policies and programs. You know, I was reading this up that uh, subsidies for fossil fuels, as well as agriculture and so on and so forth, are around like $7 trillion. So that's about, I want to say about more or less 8-9% of global GDP that we're still spending on fossil fuels around the globe, which really is just an egregious statistics, knowing what the IPCC has been telling us for many, many, many years, knowing what we know now which people have known for a long time, but now those, all of those climate impacts are manifesting from climate refugees to you know, starvation and everything else in between. But despite that, there's this massive investment going towards fossil fuel industries. And these industries are at this point getting propped up through these subsidies. And that's where sort of like, you know, that the challenge of and the ethical considerations are completely lost altogether. And often we don't, we don't really push our politicians to do more and think about the future generations, right? So the questions we really should be asking ourselves is that, you know, what is it that we want to explain to our children that what, why is it that we did nothing to prevent a totally catastrophic future, which we're going to leave with them? Um, and often these conversations get shut down whenever you're just stating the state of the affairs, be it the political economy of climate change, be it the impacts of climate change. People often conflate it with, oh, well, you're pushing climate doom and gloom, when the reality and the lived experiences and the embodied experiences of poor people around the world, including the United States, are just those particular realities. But people want you to create, particularly a lot of climate scientists, They want you to create this cognitive dissonance, basically, to not think about that intergenerational justice, right? Like, to not think about that, what is it that we're going to be owing people in the future? And then the talk about this, like, mythical technology and techno-optimism that's somehow going to fix climate change in the future, which it is not. It's a very complex social issue. Until we start putting pressure on our politicians, Till academics such as myself start explicitly, specifically holding these politicians and including our own leaders within these institutions accountable, I'm not sure like if we're going to be able to deliver what we owe to the future generations unless we embrace a sustainable future as one of those really key priorities uh, from an ethics and morality perspective, right? So because I can 
pontificate about it all day long. Uh, but till we stop pegging our imagination to political expediency, it will not deliver an intergenerational climate justice. Yeah, thank you. Actually, when you say that, um, I talk about all the oil that is being right now, uh, you know, all the permits that are being issued out right now. It's very interesting because I'm from Uganda, right? And mm-hmm. we are 100% renewable, honestly, because we have hydro and then we have solar. We don't, we don't, that's all we use as energy and, you know. Obviously, we have biomass, which is considered, I'm saying, quote-unquote, are renewable, and there are issues around that, mm-hmm. how you define renewable in terms of biomass. But yeah, so we discovered oil in the Albertan region, right? And so it's mm-hmm. been like a big, it's right now, it's a big talk of like, when do we start to drill and who's drilling, ah. who is investing in that space? And you see the superpowers that are coming in, France specifically, right? The French are like really, mm-hmm. really strong. They're they've really like put themselves out there and they're investing heavily. And it's mm-hmm. in the most beautiful space. It's Marishon Falls National Park. It's a wonderful place to go to. I really want to go back and like take all the pictures that I need to take because uh-huh. I know it's not going to be the same anymore. Yeah, yeah. But um, it breaks my heart to know that uh, the big powers are the ones who are investing in this space and we're not going to see are the benefits of having a clean environment or clean air quality anymore in Uganda. And I work with uh, the native tribes here in the U.S. and they have a saying where they say that you should be able to use whatever you use from the land and have seven generations after you come in and use the same resource or enjoy the same benefit that you are enjoying presently. So thank you for putting that into context for us. And um, maybe this goes right into what you just shared. Like So within the intergovernmental organizations, it is assumed that wealthier countries have a moral obligation to the poorer nations in supporting adaptation and mitigation measures. How do you address the ethical implications of global power dynamics, right, in the context of climate change and public health? Because these are the same people who are, like, at the core, they're the ones who are in the Paris agreements, and they are the very same people who are funding these big power projects or fossil fuel projects. So please help Mm us sort of, like, understand this. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so I think um, my focus or rather critique and the and the sort of like, you know, Western hemisphere um, is more geared toward uh, the so-called liberals, especially in the U.S. context, which is kind of more like the average person is a center-right Democrat, and but they consider themselves to be this like, you know, liberal people who are socially progressive. But more often than not, you know, like they, they are more married to the ideas of respectability politics and less so about delivering action or delivering benefits to those at the margins of the society. I say that all to say that, in my view, like I, I don't think proposals like climate reparations are radical. I think they are very much a pragmatic, practical policy solution to what's coming with climate change. So how do we go about it? In my view, I think like it's a from ethics perspective. Like I'm not sure like if it's also complicated to really aggressively advocate for climate reparations around the globe. Now, what shape or form that they take, that is something we can discuss and think about and uh, consider the voices specifically of the people of the so-called global south, as opposed to you know giving into this tendency of speaking for the wasteless in a very colonial mindset. 
But I think climate reparations is that good starting point. And there's some action at the UN level from a loss and damage perspective. We'll see how aggressively it's pursued and actually implemented. But those conversations have sort of like, you know, take in some shape or form. But climate reparations, in my view, is the only way to move forward if we are to actually incorporate climate ethics into these conversations. Because these wealthiest nations, uh, wealthier nations, like they have a lot of resources um, that they, they're they constantly spending on things like, you know, militarism. Like for instance, in the United States context, the amount of money we spend on our military just to just bomb people around the globe by an institution that's one of the most polluting industry in the entire planet, the American military. Uh, so just imagining a world where you're repurposing those resources and giving back to the communities who never caused the problem to begin with. Uh, so kind of going back to some of the statistics we were sharing at the beginning of this conversation, that much of it, you know, was created by people in the Western Hemisphere and rich people specifically on that. Um, and it continues to be a problem that is being caused by the richest and uh, the price is getting paid by the poorest, right? Like, you know, I'm sure you've come across at least um, in one capacity or the other, if you were in any social media about this submarine that was, you know, trying to go see Titanic. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So all these billionaires, right? So, and it's, it's, it's just fascinating that there was this other story about uh, 700 plus you know, people who were trying to get to uh, the Greece coast, uh, they're just fleeing violence. They're fleeing a lot of other social challenges that can be traced back to colonialism in the past. And, and to some extent, uh, climate change at the moment, because climate change disrupts livelihoods and so on and so forth. But there was virtually nothing that was done for those particular folks. In fact, my understanding is that the Coast Guard was observing that ship, you know, calling for issuing distress signals, but they took a very long time to actually try to do something to help them. Versus when you look at these billionaires, like multiple countries, entire military apparatus was mobilized to try to find this little submarine, right? So like, you know, say Canada and uh, Canadian Navy, uh, those folks were mobilized, U.S. Navy and Coast Guard. French military was mobilized, you know, all sorts of apparatus and both, um, you know, from their the, the policy position perspective, as well as practical resources that were poured into trying to find that. Um, and in, in my view, it kind of creates this sort of, you know, this like picture for climate change, right? Like, you know, that when it's happening to the richest, uh, whatever is it that, you know, whichever way you look, you know, all the resources immediately appear out of nowhere, right? So all of a sudden, we have the money and the finances to support these people. But if it is about the poor, we constantly want to push this neoliberal scarcity mindset that, oh, we don't have resources, when they actually do. Um, so long-winded way of saying that um, I think climate reparations is the way to go. And as far as like, you know, how do we think about kind of both considering the implications of it and practically moving towards it. In my view, the only way moving forward is this like global solidarity among the poor and working class across nations, both within nations as well as across the globe to really put pressure on governments around the globe. Because like these governments, even in the global South, continue to be 
controlled by these global regimes like the World Bank or IMF or the political pressure from nations like the United States. So even if people are demanding something, the governments have only so much capacity to do so because there are all these other pressures that are imposed by the Western world. Uh, so thinking about like, you know, that particular global solidarity from, you know, again, global south to global north, but having a more ethical responsibility in the Western world where we are putting a lot more pressure on our governments to do more. Like in the case of the United States, for instance, I rarely ever come across anyone in public health, and I'm talking about scholars and other faculty and colleagues who are engaged uh, with uh, climate negotiations at the UN level, let alone providing policy solutions, let alone just, you know, creating this mass mobilization to put pressure on our government so the government is negotiating on the behalf of poor people, both in this country as well as the global south, as opposed to negotiating on behalf of corporations, which is something that the U.S. government has historically done. Wow. Wow. Well said and well put. It's very interesting because I did a a class in my first year here for my master's. It was international law and climate change. That Mm -hmm. class broke my heart in so many ways. But it also like got me thinking a lot about, I'm from Uganda. Um, mm-hmm. It's one of the most, you know, it's least represented in these international talks, right? Mm-hmm. Much, much more like all the other countries that are struggling, right? And the people who are representing us, the other people who are able to show up. When you talk about visa issues, are we going to get a visa to go for these talks, first of all? Mm-hmm. That's right. And then are you, are you going to have like good lawyers? Because these countries have very good lawyers to go and negotiate, right? Are you going to be able to afford that good lawyers to show up and negotiate for you? Who is going to show up for you anywhere? Like other people who are saying, are they the scientists? We don't have that, right? Or if we do, there are very few. And so when you go in these talks and if you're able to go to the talks, how are you able to negotiate for your own country, for your own continent, for your own people? Right. It becomes a big question that I thought about it so much. It broke me down and I'm like, I'm tired of thinking about it because at the end of the day, there is so much unfairness around the world. And climate change is only going to exacerbate the like the unfairness around us because who's going to afford you know to live a comfortable life when all this happens? So thank you for bringing that. And so that's right. That's I just right. want yeah. I, I just want to interject just very quickly to say that you're you're absolutely like hundred percent spot on. And I, I just want to share that I was at at COP twenty seven uh, in Sharm Sheikh, Egypt. And the room charges at that particular resort where they decided to have that conference were like, I think sometimes like upwards of $1,000 a night. Like no one can afford it. Uh, I mean, forget people coming from, um, you know, at in that context, local continent. You know, even people like poor people or even middle-class people in the U.S. context. And so no one can afford to actually go and join these conversations, right? And so it becomes this question of like, you know, climate education as well, that are we educating our communities? Are we educating our uh, students? Are we educating our faculty? Are we educating the masses? So they actually know what these conversations are about and what is it that our government's agenda is, that what are those simplified talking points that these people can actually 
push for one way or the other, right? Like, you know, this is what you should be negotiating. And that's where I think like this kind of colonial apparatus comes into play, coloniality of knowledge. And the reason that thing survives is basically is that there's so much confusion and vague and complicated language that gets used. And people are told that, oh, well, it's beyond your comprehension. So you can't do it. And, And then there's this like, you know, practical challenge, which you aptly point out, that it's not something that people can simply even think about uh, going to, let alone actively participating in any meaningful way um, at that global stage. And and then, then there's this sort of like, you know, this language of sort of like, you know, civic society engagement, which is really that, you know, like you create this venue where people can talk about, and those venues are always vibrant at, the, at these international negotiation conferences. But at the same time, you know, like they are used to, you know, mask the actual inaction across these particular conferences on a consistent basis. Yeah. Wow. I mean, that's where we are right now. Sometimes you think about it and you're like, I can't think about it anymore because there's nothing, I feel yeah. hopeless, I can't do anything. And it's it's very crippling in my case. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm more of an action-based person. And so when I get to that point where I can't do anything, I feel really bogged down. So mm-hmm. one day, one day, <laughs> Let's just talk about because this is this this is a very interesting conversation and just to tie into that you know like centering voices who of the oppressed right so in your article colonialism the climate crisis and the need to center indigenous voices you mentioned that colonialism and capitalism are the root causes of climate change and environmental degradation and we've seen this anyway right could you help break this down for us and describe the importance at least for those who don't have an understanding of what colonialism is in terms of climate change and in terms of like the importance of centering indigenous voices within these conversations around climate change and public health and, you know, these big international platforms where decisions are being made for people who are not at the table. Yeah, absolutely. So so colonialism basically, in my view, if you can just boil it down, it's been this like extractive project by a very small percentage of their global population it has been about commodification of resources and human beings. And it has historically reflected in literal you know, extraction and colonization of all these countries and current contemporary settler colonial nations like the one I am in, United uh, States of America. And that particular process itself has all been about extracting labor extracting value and it has completely and absolutely disregarded anything that was outside of that particular singular outcome of extracting wealth uh, from everything that they saw uh, be it uh, the global humanity be it the resources be it the environment and so on and so forth and that's something that continues to pay dividend for those who have historically done that right like you know and, and that gets showed in the global power dynamics that you were referring to earlier, it shows in, again, like rich people consuming most of the resources that we were talking about earlier, and so on and so forth. So that's been the colonial project, right? So like, you know, and, and the uh, contemporary understanding primarily coming from, I don't think it's anything malicious, but for most scientists, particularly in the STEM sector, uh, we don't historicize our uh, scientific developments. We don't historicize how we got to where we are today. And often 
things like colonialism are seen as the things of the past when they're not. They're very much so present today. They've just taken different shapes or forms, right? I'm not going to get too theoretical as to not bog down the listeners. But what I will say is that, you know, I encourage them to check out this uh, particular framework called Coloniality Matrix of Power, where there are this sort of, uh, you know, scholars and theorists have been working on it for a very, very long time. And primarily, a couple of things that I'll point out from it is that colonialism is basically in our contemporary society reflects in this notion of coloniality of power which is really about structures of power, control, and hegemony, right? So like, you know, think about the inescapability of capitalism that is, you know, beaten into our heads where we think that capitalism is the end of history and we cannot move past it. And that's a, that's it. That's one example of both coloniality of power and coloniality of knowledge, right? Like, you know, thinking about the neoliberal systems in the contemporary uh, society that are pushed by Western worlds, across the globe. And if anyone who resists it, we create this entire made up, conjured up narratives about how much we care about human rights when we actually don't, and impose all sorts of crippling, dehumanizing sanctions. So the example would be Cuba, for instance. So things like that, uh, you know, those are examples of coloniality of power, right? So like, you know, World Trade Organization, IMF, World Bank, the United States, um, funding mechanisms around the globe, all of these serve to maintain that colonial power around the globe. And that's something, it's not in the past, it's not on the fringes, it's very much our lived reality, but it requires that we question our ontological assumptions about how the world works which very few people are given time to actually think about that part. And along the same lines, uh, you know, there's this similar notion of coloniality of knowledge, which is really about, you know, just basically making Western ways of thinking and Western knowledge as universal, right? So like, you know, thinking about this like very positivist way of thinking that everything needs to be observed. These are the people who have difficulty entertaining the ideas of fairness and justice and ethics and morality, because you cannot quantify and reduce it down to a number, because that's what they're comfort, comfortable and an easier spot for them to perceive the world lies. And, and that's where kind of, I think like it's, again, like becomes in, incredibly important that we are interrogating our ontological assumptions about how the world works. In, and in doing so, we can reject this binary thinking of, you know, just having one or the other responses uh, to both climate change, as well as to our political system, as well as to the current global world order, and really rethink and reimagine a world which is just and kind and humane and uh, without climate change. Yeah. Wow. I mean, when you just talked about that, I was just thinking about, I was going back to my own research, right? And what I'm seeing I work in a space of air quality, health and equity, as you know, from mm-hmm. in Uganda. And all the papers that are being written, and it's only been recent when we started doing research in air quality, or at least ambient air quality, because we have not had also monitors to monitor air, measure the specifics of what um, the particulates are in the air, because it's very expensive, obviously, and we have to rely on like, the Western world to like get the technology there, set up, mm-hmm. and all the things that come along with that. that probably I'm going to be very frustrated because um, I like to think about why are things the way they are, and 
maybe I'm not supposed to do that and just go with the way business is as usual, like everyone else. But I'm not that kind of person. I like to question things and why they are. And so also part of my research, I look at how colonialism shaped the air quality that we see. All the papers that are coming out right now just talk about the numbers. And I'm like, but there is a reason why things are the way they are. And so for my research, we were colonized by the British in, in, in Uganda, right? And so mm-hmm. where well, they designed the city boundaries, so we had the British settlements, we have the Indian settlements, and then we have the native settlements. And so you see that the air quality in these settlements is very different, but no mm-hmm. one is talking about this. So I like that you have to question, like you bring the question of colonialism into like climate change, because you have to understand some of the things to make meaning of where you are currently. So thank you for bringing that uh, to our attention. Uh- Absolutely, absolutely. And I think like you're, you're spot on. And I'll, I'll also share that, you know, like I was born in Pakistan, grew up there. And that too is just like Uganda, a former British colony. Because British have been the English, I should say, have been the nightmare for the entire world. <laughs> and and there, you know, I grew up in a farming family. And, you know, at the time, you don't have the requisite knowledge to understand and analyze things. But looking back, much of the challenges that, uh, you know, my family or my community was facing, you could trace those back to those colonial processes, right? Like, you know, kind of you are doing this really incredibly groundbreaking work of thinking about your pollution and coloniality and the still uh, remaining effects of colonialism, both in power structures and physical structures. Like I've observed it in the in that sort of like, you know, just um, India and Pakistani context. The British, like their interest was, again, like, you know, just the commodification of just about everything that they saw and extracting value from it for their own benefit, not for the communities. And there was this like mass diversions of rivers at this like large scale commercial irrigation And it led to sort of like, like, you know, destruction of many, many ecosystems. And there are parts of Pakistan that now have major flooding issues because those systems were destroyed under this like British irrigation system that they developed for commercial crops, right? So a lot of it was about sort of like, again, like people lived in a lot more sustainable ways, but they were all about cash crops. And that ended up robbing indigenous populations of their autonomy to protect their natural communities and the ways they, they've been living for centuries, right? So like, you know, it created all sorts of these so-called Monday, which is a term for market accounts, which was again, all about cash economy. It was all about the superiority of urban population. It was all about creating local indigenous elites who can then do the bidding of these colonial oppressors um, on their behalf. Like, you know, the, the new canal system, the seepage from that water system that increased water tables and eventually sort of their, their issues of water logging and just total crop destruction around that country. And those are just some of the things that come to mind from that colonial process that the country is still paying the price for until this day. So, yeah, so thank you for sharing the example of Uganda. Yeah, sure. Um, I'm yet to publish the paper. I'll share it with you because I think the results that I'm seeing, they are very interesting. And as we start to wrap up, I would just want you to speak more on like, I mean, you went to the COP of 27, but like the report of COP26 on climate change and health states that the public health benefits from implementing ambitious climate actions far outweigh the course. Could you speak more on this as it relates, obviously, to the ethics of achieving this? Um, let me just preface this by saying that the, the challenge isn't that people don't know 
um, or by people, I mean like you know scholars and practitioners of climate change. The challenge is that the way these like colonial regimes work around the globe, including in within countries and in countries like the United States, is that this this notion of incrementalism it convinces us that mass death and violence is acceptable. So bit by bit by bit by bit, uh, over the years and decades, we get convinced and we just like, you know, move our goalpost even further. COVID is an example, for instance, uh, before I get to the, the benefits of that action. COVID is an example, you know, initially it's a, a lot of mass death that was caused by this particular disease. The vast majority of it was preventable, but our government's two successive administrations failed the population, both in the United States as well as around the globe, colossally in epic proportions, where they basically actively made a decision that they're going to prioritize the economy and not the poor people. And the result was this mass death and morbidity and mortality and the long-term effects of COVID. But that wasn't a process that happened overnight. It was a process where they basically started convincing people that, oh, X amount of death is acceptable, Y amount of death is acceptable. And then that bar kept getting lower and lower and lower and lower and lower. And to a point where people were are now convinced that millions of people who have died and thousands who are dying right now and getting disabled is an acceptable thing as a society. I shared that all to say that climate change is pretty much along the same lines from an ethical perspective, because like as the years pass by, as opposed to really harping on that urgency and putting pressure on the governments, what we're really doing is we're trying to convince that, oh, X is acceptable, but that's sort of like, you know, the value of that X continue to get changed uh, to a point where, again, like, you know, massive deaths and morbidity and mortality that's caused by climate change continues to be an acceptable thing as opposed to actively aggressively thinking about trying to mitigate it. Which brings us to, you know, our question of, you know, benefits, which is really, um, for the most part, I'm not sure like there is any any ethics related or, you know, morality related debate about the action. Rather, the question or the framing should be, that what are the costs of inaction? Because that's the question that is not asked, right? So like, even when we're talking about health inequities or social inequities or global north, you know, inequities, often the conversation is always about, oh, look at X community who is getting impacted. But we don't talk about the flip of it, which is really, well, who stands to benefit from it, right? So in this particular sort of like, you know, question, I mean, we know for sure that just the, 0.5 degree change, 1.5 degree centigrade, which is something that we were aiming for. And now we've been convinced both by the government and a lot of well-meaning scientists um, who are pushing this sort of like, you know, the narrative of climate optimism, which at some point is scientific malpractice in my view. Um, you know, now we know that the 1.5 degree centigrade is, you know, I, we don't think we're going to be able to get there, right? So now the conversation is about 2 centigrade. So even if we were to look at just that difference of 0.5 centigrade mm. uh, overall warming, like it's a massive, massive difference, right? Like, you know, so the, for freshwater availability, like that doubles in terms of like, you know, the 
uh, reduction in it in the Mediterranean. I think that was one of the statistics I was looking at. From you can look at the crop yield, uh, you know, the production goes down almost like, you know, that the 0.5 degrees centigrade reduces the crop production by twice as much as it would have been at 1.5 centigrade, right? And then similarly with sea level rise, coral bleaching, and so on and so forth, the list goes on and on and on. But the point is that, you know, as opposed to using that 1.5 as an aggressive metric, now we're convinced that, oh, well, we can't do 1.5, let's aim for two. And in a decade, people are going to start pushing, well, you're being a climate boomer and bloomer, maybe we should aim for 2.5, right? And often these are people who are in positions of privilege, right? Like, you know, these are academics who have the luxury to sit in their, in some cases, literal glass houses and talk about what level of acceptability they're comfortable with when it comes to mass death of the poor masses of the globe, right? So I say that all to say that I think like the question should be reframed. The question we should be asking is that what are the costs of climate inaction? And that, in my view, would be a lot more generative because like this thing really, you know, reproduces all those talking points. Well, it's too expensive, uh, but no one talks about how expensive inaction is going to be and what sort of moral challenges that inaction is going to create from climate refugees and internally displaced populations and so on and so forth. All right. Thank you very much, Anis. It's been wonderful speaking with you. And over back to Shahad's. With that, I would like to thank our guests, Dr. An Sirfan and our interviewer, Dorothy Lesoto, for joining us on this episode of Atmospheric Tales. Thanks to all our listeners for tuning in. Make sure to subscribe and share.